So I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Thomas, who is uh, uh, board certified from the American Academy of Pediatrics and I think unusually also a diplomat uh, of the American Board of Addiction Medicine. So he has those very different and uh, I think useful board certifications in those two areas that makes him, uh, I think, a, a very important and pediatrician, but also an individual who has a lot of expertise in addiction medicine. And uh, Paul has an integrative clinic in uh, Portland, Oregon, and he also has an addiction, uh, opioid addiction clinic uh, called Fair Start, which we'll talk about a little bit in, um, in Portland as well. So he treats uh, really a spectrum of children and uh, young people with addiction as well. So uh, Paul, I, I'm very happy that you could take a few minutes and talk with us. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, and I uh, noticed a quote in your book that I really like, as you said, it's not easy to be human for anyone. And for some of us, find being human excruciatingly hard. And uh, I wanted you, if you could just talk about uh, your story, your personal story with addiction and, and how that's really uh, affected where you've gone in your career. Well, thanks, Dan, for having me on this interview. Um, I was born in Portland, Oregon, where I happen to work now and have worked for the last 30 years. My parents were missionaries to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe and took me there when I was four years old. I stayed in Africa through high school. I went to a high school in Swaziland and then returned to the United States for college and medical school residency and then landed right here back in Portland, Oregon. So that's sort of my quick tour of where I've been in the world. Um, I was a very active, energetic child. So I was the class clown. I was on the verge of boredom half the time, I think, and despite being very, what we would probably call today ADD, ADD or I, I had the H part for sure, so ADHD, um, I did well in school. So I would sit at the back of the classroom, kind of just goofing around, and all through high school I was able to manage. Um, calculus in college was slightly different. <laughs> that was a, whoops, I'm in trouble over my head here. Uh, but ne nevertheless, I, uh, I got through college, got a master's before getting to medical school. Uh, and, but I want to talk to our listeners about my journey as relates to addiction. This whole idea of it's hard to be human. I think, I mean, there are a few people who are just blessed with life is easy. I mean, they just sort of fit in everywhere. They, they're socially at ease all the time. And, you know, when you're in school, that's easy. And if you're blessed in that way, wow, that's, that's nice, right? Uh, for some of us, I'll speak for myself, at least in this particular moment, um, I think I had anxiety that I was not aware of. I mean, looking back, I was a pretty anxious um, child. And I was definitely uh, active and hyper. So what happened for me was I didn't have access to drugs or alcohol growing up because I was a missionary kid in Africa and then I was in a boarding school on a mountain in Swaziland. I basically had access to alcohol I think three or four times in high school. I, I loved the effect, but I wasn't aware that that's what was going on. 
So let's fast forward to college in the United States, and I find myself in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at Kalamazoo College. My aunt lived near there and said, oh, this is a great liberal arts college. And I recall I was a very dedicated student. Uh, I would only allow myself to drink once a week, but, you know, it was buddies at the bar, and we were pouring down pitchers. And Friday night was lost to me, and usually Saturday I was hungover, and that was pretty much a waste. That's how I drank. I just loved the effect. And I think people who've had challenges with addictions realize that their substance of choice was doing something for them that they loved or needed. And you'll hear this from opioid addicts, from meth addicts, alcoholics for sure. Um, it, initially, the substance that you become addicted to, or even if it's a behavior, uh, there are, you know, there's gambling addiction. There are people who are, you know, addicted to sex. You know, it is doing something for them that they are finding uh, releases tension. It's pleasurable. And after a time, you know, my progression was very slow along the addiction spectrum. I, I called my book The Addiction Spectrum just because I became aware that for pretty much everybody, pick your addiction. Uh, the, the correct terminology these days is substance use disorder. Uh, but regardless of your substance, if we're going to stick with substances for this analogy, you're not born addicted unless you happen to have had a mom who is a heroin addict, for example, and you have to go through withdrawal that first week of life. Uh, most of us don't start with these substances until we're in our teens, sometimes even the early 20s. And then there's this journey, this progression from occasional use to more extensive use to many cases daily use. And I was no different in that regard. Uh, it's not something I'm proud of, but I became physically dependent on alcohol initially just to help me get to sleep. So I was one of those functional alcoholics. Uh, I drank in medical school a little bit. I drank in residency. Um, not that much. I never drank when I was on call, but after a long shift, 36 hours, I'd come home, have a few beers, I'd pass out anyway. I was so exhausted. And then it progressed as I was, you know, in my career in pediatrics. And I think I was using it mostly to get to sleep, but my body actually became physically dependent on alcohol. And if it got to the point where um, if I didn't have alcohol at night, I was just irritable. Actually, by evening, uh, I didn't feel right. And a, a drink or two would just help me relax, feel better. And those of you who've experienced uh, a physical withdrawal from a substance you've become dependent upon, you know what I'm talking about. You take that substance, and usually your intention, if it's alcohol, is just a drink or two. But oftentimes, those of us who, who call ourselves alcoholic, what we learned was it's that first drink that sort of triggers this phenomenon of craving and you may or may not have an off switch. So you drink way more than you intended. And that's sort of that vicious cycle. You wake up remorseful the next morning. I'm not going to do that again. And by evening you find your car just veering off to the liquor store or to the, the grocery store, depending on what you're drinking. And that went on for me for 13 years, I would say. After I became aware I was drinking too much, I just couldn't seem to put it down. 
So, Dan, I have 16 years of, of sobriety, and what a f sense of freedom I've had since I was able to get that monkey off my back. Um, but that's sort of my own personal journey in a, in a quick nutshell. And, and how did that, uh, clearly that uh, was the, at some level the impetus for the Fair Start Clinic. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who you see there and what age group and, and what kind of addictions uh, you're seeing in, in that space? Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, my story, to make it have, make, for it to make sense, I, I need to share a little bit of my family's history as well. So my wife of the past 30 years uh, had terrible degenerative TMJ jaw disease. And it went, ended up going through multiple horrendous surgeries. And after these surgeries, she'd be on, she would be on opiates uh, pretty long-term. I mean, they were really rough recoveries. She became dependent on opiates. And, you know, there's an interesting thing that happens with people who have addictions. We tend to have a partner not always, but we often will have a partner with whom there's this unspoken agreement, don't mess with my addiction and I won't mess with yours. And that was certainly the case with my wife. I was drinking too much at night. She was using opioids uh, past the time where she should have been needing them for her recovery from her surgery. And so our addictions sort of progressed because of this inability of, of us to uh, really become accountable and, and hold each other accountable. And what ended up happening was she, we were both spiraling in the severity of our addiction, but she was getting in, in I was scared for her life. I, it started to look like she might reach a point where she could overdose. And so I, it's, it's funny how this happened. I took myself to an AA meeting and, and my goal was to get a year of sobriety and then I was going to do an intervention. And it just didn't seem fair for me to, to like say, well, okay, I'm doing the right thing now. You have to right away. And so what ended up happening was two weeks into my sobriety journey, uh, it became absolutely essential to do an intervention or she was going to probably lose her life. And so we did this with her counselor, her uh, primary care doctor, her sister, her best friends, and the family, and she went to treatment. Well, coming out of treatment, she, having been a nurse and worked in intensive care, that was her career, uh, what was she going to do? And we thought, what better, after she had had a couple years of sobriety, what better than to start a clinic to help others who are struggling with opiates? Because there was such a need. Being a pediatrician, I was seeing there was a percentage, uh, small as it may be, there, was very, there were very few places that teenagers could go or young adults could go and have their addiction dealt with, and especially the opiate crisis that was starting to rev up. This was right at the time where OxyContin was being uh, changed so that it was harder to abuse it. When I opened my clinic in 2009, about half my patients at that time were using pills. OxyContin was a big one. And it was right around that time they changed that formulation, making it impossible to crush and abuse, and, or almost impossible. And people very quickly switched over to heroin. Uh, and thus, these days, just almost all my patients in my opioid addiction clinic are uh, addicted to heroin. Uh, but that was sort of the, the, 
the impetus to start that clinic was both uh, to honor my wife's journey and for me to offer that connection between, you know, here's a pediatrician who deals with, I have in my clinic, in my pediatric practice, 15,000 patients. I have over 1,000 with ADD, ADHD, and 300 with depression, anxiety. Um, these are high-risk teenagers, and uh, some of them do end up addicted to opiates. And this provided them with a uh, safe landing and a place where they could get that taken care of uh, fairly efficiently. Uh, and we're having pretty good success at Fair Start. So at Fair Start, you're seeing primarily in terms of the addictions are uh, opiates and, and heroin. Is that, uh, is that and, and the age group is uh, young adults under 20? Or do you see you take all comers? No, I start anybody under the age of 30. Uh, most of uh, most of the folks who are addicted to opioids and in their 20s are sort of their emotional development is arrested in their teen years, um, and I feel like I'm I'm a pretty good fit for them. So I have very only a few teenagers, and most of my patients are in their 20s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you have a fairly uh, full schedule to me. Uh, both in, in your pediatric practice and, and the Fair Start Clinic. How, how much time do you spend in either one, or do you go back and forth? So I was able to uh, actually build the space that I'm working in. And so my pediatric clinic has 10 exam rooms, and then there's a you walk, you can walk into the main entrance of the pediatric clinic, or there's a side entrance to my Fair Start Addiction Clinic off of the same hallway. So there's separate little clinic spaces, but there's a back door connecting the two. So I can just go from one end to the other if I need to. Basically, what the way I've set it up is to, um, I have one day a week where I'm predominantly doing addiction, Tuesday afternoon starting at noon, and I still see pediatric patients Tuesday morning. And then I've got two blocks of time, Monday and Wednesday, uh, in the middle of the day where I'm doing my addiction clinic. Uh, keeping them separate for a while when I started, I was just simply running back and forth, and that got a little insane. So um, I have separate blocks of time now for, for each of those clinics, and that seems to work better. Mm -hmm. I have a dedicated uh, intake person uh, and a dedicated nurse for the addiction side, just because it wouldn't have to necessarily be that way. But honestly, if, if any of my listeners are pediatricians thinking about getting into treating opioid addicts, it would be a little tricky to have, you know, late teens and early 20 opioid addicts walking into your pediatric waiting room. Mm -hmm. um, I think yes. that would just create some tensions, probably more so with the staff than, than the other patients, that, you know, but it just kept it simple to have the two areas completely separate. Mm -hmm. So we talked uh, briefly a few minutes ago about uh, medication-assisted therapies, and that's obviously part of uh, your treatment, and we'll get into um, the other parts. I, I'm just wondering that, uh, you know, we all know there's, there's a variety of barriers um, to the, really, the low access or utilization of these therapies, and um, uh, I'm, I'm wondering how you um, use these. Uh, are you um, you seeing patients on Medicaid? Uh, what? How, how are you able to integrate that into into the therapy? Yeah. 
Well, the insurance side of it, Dan, is is interesting. Uh, I'm I'm primarily a primary care pediatrician, and most of the insurance companies cannot wrap their head around the fact that I can also be an addiction specialist, which I am, being board certified in addiction medicine. So I end up being the primary care provider for these uh, young adults as well when they're on the Oregon Health Plan, which is our um, state insurance program. Uh, they just can't seem to figure out that I can be two things. And there, that's another reason for me as a pediatrician uh, to limit the age to 30. I just, I didn't feel like I wanted to be taking care of 60-year-old heroin addicts with congestive heart failure, for example. That would just be out of my wheelhouse. Um, but for anybody who's thinking about helping, maybe in your town you don't have an addiction specialist where people can go and get medication-assisted treatment, uh, the process is, is actually not that difficult but I would add a few, a few uh, cautions. So what you need as a minimum requirement to use buprenorphine in the office setting, you, have to, you don't have to be board certified in addiction medicine. You do have to be board certified in some specialty. And then there's a minimum requirement of a data 2000 course that can be taken, actually it can be done online and it's eight to 12 hours, uh, certain restrictions on how many hours you need to take depending on your uh, background training. And um, you also are required to offer counseling or refer to counseling. I actually refer just because, I mean, I'm doing some counseling, but I'm not a counselor. I'm a pediatrician and an addiction specialist. We did have a counselor once in my office, but the requirements to have office-based counseling, uh, there's a whole another layer of hoops to jump through. So so basically, if you're board certified in any specialty, you get the data 2000 waiver, meaning you've taken that training as you, and of course you have a DEA license, the data 2000 gives you an XT number. When you're writing for buprenorphine, you have to have that waiver and you, you're using a special DEA code with your XT number that matches your DEA uh, number. And the things I would add cautionary is the following. Most states are having a real challenge with diversion. So here's what diversion looks like. Joe is 22 and he's in the business of selling drugs. And if he goes to my clinic and tells me he's opioid addicted and maybe he can figure out a way to show some withdrawal symptoms, I start writing him prescriptions for buprenorphine. Those buprenorphine tabs have a street value that can be anywhere from 15 to $20. I don't know, it may, it may be even more in some towns. So if he gets a prescription of 60 of those pills and he's, he's gonna go sell those and he can buy heroin a lot cheaper. So there are people who are in the business of trying to get a hold of buprenorphine so they can sell it and either just pocket the money or buy heroin. So it is very important in my, in my opinion that you do urine drug screens on site every time at, at a minimum. And urine drug screens, it's just a, a you're, you know, they, they need a bathroom where you could potentially observe them if you needed to. We did observe urines for the longest time and I've gotten around that now by also having a backup saliva test. So I will randomly do a saliva test as backup to catch anybody that might be bringing in fake urine uh, there's uh, quite an industry 
where you can buy fake urine online. Uh, even if you're observing the uh, urine collection, they have things like whizinators, so you, you can use a fake penis to produce your urine. Uh, so it's, there are ways around even the observed urine test, which is why I like to use a saliva backup random. As you know, if you do this work, you'll get a sense of somebody that's, that's kind of uh, trying to manipulate the system. You can usually spot these folks. But anyway, I would highly recommend urine drug screens. Uh, and then you also have to have, you, if you're gonna do this properly, in my opinion, you bring the patient in for that initial visit in withdrawal. So if they last used heroin 16, 18 hours ago, they're gonna be pretty uncomfortable and having significant withdrawal symptoms and you can do a COWS, which is a measurement of their withdrawal symptoms. And then you can make sure they're in enough withdrawal to give them their test dose of buprenorphine. The medication we're using is buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist. So it has a partial opioid effect. And it's also a very powerful partial antagonist. I explain it to patients as follows. You're basically blocking half of your opiate receptors and knocking off whatever was on those receptors. And then you're, you're activating the other half with an opioid effect. And what this does, as long as they're in enough withdrawal, they will actually feel better within 30 minutes, sometimes 20, 30 minutes, they're feeling significantly better. And for sure in an hour or two, when you've given a subsequent dose because you know they tolerated the first dose, now you're actually helping block their opioid receptors and for the first time they feel okay but they're not high and if you get enough buprenorphine going that first day, day when you're doing their detox and initiating the uh, medical assisted treatment um, they're in a much safer place when they leave your office because it, they won't get much benefit if they go out and use and so it's a, it's a very nice tool. You, you cannot overdose from buprenorphine if you're an opioid addict. It's just, you're not gonna get enough opioid effects. So it has a nice safety profile. Uh, the one caution if you're using this approach is if you give it too soon, you will precipitate withdrawal. So somebody comes in, they're kind of faking withdrawal symptoms. And if you were to fall for that and you give them buprenorphine, they're vomiting all over your, your exam room. Um, because they'll go into precipitated withdrawal, which is no fun at all. To give buprenorphine in the office though, and this is something to really have you pay close attention to, um, you have to jump through some hoops. The, the, the DEA can come in and, and do in-office uh, screening of how you're handling narcotics. They have to be locked behind uh, two, two, two locks. So you wanna have a, a locked safe that's behind a locked room. And uh, you have to have a tracking sheet that's carefully tracking, uh, you know, drug counts. It, a lot of pediatricians might have, I, I don't anymore, but we used to have coding in the office and you had to track that. Well, the, the, you have to use even higher um, care in how you're tracking things uh, if you're going to have buprenorphine in your office. And the other uh, thing I would highly recommend anybody who wants to do this sort of work is sign up for the physician drug monitoring program for your state. What's, this is such a huge benefit in this kind of work. You, 
that same patient I was telling you about that might be trying to divert drugs, a lot of times they're seeing multiple physicians with various, maybe they go into one position for a chronic back pain and they're getting narcotics for that. And if you go to the physician drug monitoring program, it will list for you, you just put in the patient's name and date of birth, every controlled substance prescription they have obtained in the past many months. So it just jumps right out at you if you've got somebody that's drug seeking or, or uh, trying to divert medications. And uh, that will keep you safe from uh, falling into that trap of becoming one of the doctors who was maybe contributing to the problem rather than helping the problem. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of experience with a lot of uh, a lot of patients around this issue, Paul. I've seen a lot of. Oh yes. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit and talk in your book about um, screens and stress. You know, video screens, et cetera. And um, how much do you think that is a factor in uh, addiction and? You know what is what is your experience in in looking at the literature, the health impact of uh, screen addiction? Oh gosh, I have become more and more aware of the fact that I believe screen addiction, or maybe you don't want to call it an addiction yet, but the amount of screen time people have these days, uh, if you're looking at adolescents and young adults, uh, but it's actually expanding now to all adults, uh, it's, it's just having a devastating effect on people's uh, health. It's, I, I call it a stress. So, so the things that really tip you in, into addiction or into, as you started out saying, it's hard to be human. So I'll give the example for, I'll do prenatal visits at the start of almost every day. And I've got a, a new couple sitting in front of me and the mom's ready to pop and, and they're all excited about this new baby. And I'm explaining, you know, it's possible to have a healthy baby today, but you need to be intentional about it. And to have a healthy baby, you want a balanced immune system. And what does it take to have a balanced immune system? Well, you know, you want to eat real food, organic as possible. You need to supplement with vitamin D because most of us are severely deficient. And then the big X factor I talk about is stress. And what is the hidden stress that most people are not aware of? It's their screens. And I'll have my cell phone next to me and I'll pick it up and I'll set it down and I'll look at them and I'll say, now when my alert goes off on this cell phone, what happens in my brain? I glance to the phone instantly checking for what? I don't know, but my hormones in my brain say stress danger, right? It's a danger response. We are animal kingdom creatures wired to scan for danger. Now, obviously, the cell phone's not a bear that's about to attack you, but chemically, your brain doesn't make that distinction. So when you have these multiple, all day long, tiny little danger responses that are happening, like if you're on your screen and you're scrolling or you're playing a video game, it's like this constant barrage of tiny little bleeps of neurotransmitters being pushed out and you actually and here's where what i'm seeing in my clinic today and i'm sure the audience who if you're taking care of uh, patients in a primary care setting you are seeing this every day and it's happening more and more frequently and that's teens or young adults or it could be actually even older adults coming in and they're anxious or they're depressed or they're suicidal 
They can't get out of bed. They can't get out of the door. They can't focus in school. Uh, and when you really drill down, uh, just recently I had a day where I had six of these teenagers in a row. Well, not exactly in a row, but in one day. And they all came in with this sort of depressed, anxious, can't focus, uh, I'm in trouble sort of thing. And one by one by one, as I started asking, well, how much time are you spending on your phone? And it's six to eight hours on average these days. That's on school days. On the weekends, it's almost continuous. Uh, I want to share with, with your listeners, Dan, this one story that just jumped right out at me. It was just blew my mind. So a young lady of 16 years of age, I've known her since she was a baby. She was always one of the um, just happiest, energetic kids you could ever imagine. And she comes in severely depressed, suicidal, flat affect, and she's, on, she's been to a psychiatrist just the last few months that I wasn't aware of and was on two medications, uh, SSRIs, and she was in trouble. And long story short, we made a few adjustments. We talked about nutrition and vitamin D and fish oil and, and uh, exercise and sleep and all the things that we integrative physicians do. And I said, I got to see you back in a month. And of course, contract for if you're suicidal, come right in, make sure mom, you tell mom, mom's right there and they're, they're a good relationship. She comes back a month later, 100% happy, energetic, her I have never seen such a transformation. I'm asking her, what happened? What, what, what's going on? What happened? What'd you do? I don't know. She says, you adjusted my medication. No, I'm thinking, no, no, something else happened. Long story short, she had left my office. She was also a soccer player, had had a major concussion, went to the ER, MRI, all of that. She had lost consciousness for a few minutes with that concussion. She was put on complete brain rest. No school, no phones, no screens, no friends over, no reading rest and her brain heals and that was when i got this aha well how much time were you spending on your screens and it was that six to eight hour story and it just i don't think we're appreciating the magnitude of neurotransmitter depletion that's occurring when you're constantly on the screens and is i call it digital crack right i mean it's just like it's a very very powerful thing well, I, I think you've articulated that very well. I see mostly adults and uh, you know, they come in with their often small children and those small children are on screens. And then uh, and I also, my children are older, but, and so they never had uh, cell phones when they were growing up. They have them now, of course, but they never had them when they were growing up. And I, I just saw yesterday a, a wonderful movie called eighth grade about a young uh, girl in the eighth grade and it was it was just amazing to me about just what you're saying uh, how they are we are in general attached to our screens attached to our phones so it's uh, i i hear what you're saying and i think it's a, it's a very important message in terms of how we can uh, balance that out in different ways, and that was a great anecdote, uh, anecdote that you that you gave about that young girl. I think that's uh, yeah. Hey, Dan, uh, what I 
what I did uh, this last uh, Father's Day, I did an experiment with my kids. So my kids are all grown. They're now ages 22 to 36. I've got 10 kids, and uh, we had eight of them over for Father's Day, and uh, some of them with their partners. So we've got a house full, right? And this year, I thought, I'm going to try an experiment, because I had a Father's Day a few years ago where I was sitting in the living room with several of my kids around me, and they were all on their phones. And I thought to myself, I wonder how long it'll take before they look up and say hi to the guy who supposedly <laughs> day is for. <laughs> and honestly, they weren't going to look up. I mean, if I had texted them, I probably could have gotten a response. So this last year, I thought, all right, I'm going to make a rule. And uh, I did it. It was an experiment. I texted all of them and I said, you know, I'm trying something new this year. You are all welcome and wanted for Father's Day but please put your phone on airplane mode or leave it at home. We're going to do an experiment, no screens. And one of my kids actually made the excuse that he was too busy to come. And I, I'm, he was the one that can never put his screen down. And I'm thinking, hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> and the rest, uh, they, they did it. And man, it was the most amazing Father's Day we have ever had. In fact, all the kids said at the end of the day, this is the best day we've ever had because what happened was we were forced or just naturally were interacting with each other face to face. Uh, there were little groups of people talking. Nobody was you know, detached from the group and on their screen. It was absolutely wonderful. So I highly recommend, uh, you know, at least at mealtime, but if you can have times of the day or maybe one day of the week or you know the more you can do something like that if you have a family or if you have gatherings i think the more connected we become the connection you have on a screen is not the same as the interpersonal connection you have when you're just sitting with somebody and addiction i think one of the biggest stressors and biggest factors that put us at risk is this lack of connection that real connection that we have and i I give the example I, in my book of the rat park and Bruce Alexander, a Canadian researcher did this research where, you know, rats isolated in a cage, given water or morphine water, they usually will go to the morphine water and some of them will drink themselves to death. You take those same rats and you put them in what he called a rat park. So a nice big place to play, hide, exercise, mate, you're with your other fellow rats. And the rats would preferentially avoid the morphine water. In fact, you could take an addicted rat and put it in that environment and it would detox itself to have, you know, a sense of awareness and be able to enjoy the, the, your comrades and your fellow rats. So we human beings should be living in community. We should be connected to others. And when we are isolated, I think that really increases our risk for uh, falling into addiction. Well, Paul, I think that's a great, great way to, to end here in terms of just, uh, I, I think you have a lot of messages and I'm really looking forward to the annual conference and your concurrent session. And you're also going to be in a, um, a facilitated discussion as well. And as I said, you know, ending on the, the note of connection is probably the most important uh, uh, way in which we can uh, uh, eliminate or at least avoid some of these addictive uh, behaviors. So I want to thank you again for spending a few minutes and talking about your book and your your story and your and your experiences with uh, with kids 
with addictions. Oh, you're so welcome, Dana. You know, the, the title of our conference uh, that's dealing with stress, pain, and addictions, that triangle is so interconnected. You take the screen addictions that we're talking about, and I think you are you become so stressed out, unaware that it's stressful, right? You're you're on your screen playing or scrolling, and you don't realize that each time you hit that scroll button, uh, you are actually creating a stress response in your body. And so whether it's physical pain or emotional pain uh, that leads you maybe to look for relief, uh, you end up with stress and pain, and it, it can transition into becoming an addiction, uh, whether it's the screen addiction itself or pushes you for looking for relief uh, from more powerful sources, whether it's drugs or alcohol, tobacco, you know, the whole long, long list of uh, substances and behaviors that uh, can become addicting. Mm -hmm.